0: Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast, I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. Throughout the various stages of a modern-day pregnancy, several diagnostic tests take place for both mother and baby. My patients are often taken by surprise at how many tests are run and sometimes aren't even sure what the tests are looking for or what the results might mean. In today's episode, we will explore what diagnostic measures are standard during a typical pregnancy, when and how they are run, and how to make sense of the results. My guest is a board-certified ob with a subspecialty in maternal-fetal medicine. He is a clinical professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Science at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He's currently in private practice in New York City, and his dedication to ongoing research and education make him just the right person to help demystify the myriad of pregnancy-related tests. Dr. Nate Fox, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I'm really excited to have you on. You know, before pandemic, I was a podcast snob and would only interview people in our studio (laughs) face-to-face. I love the audio to sound as good as it can, and I just love seeing people and just having a conversation face-to-face. And while that was great in some ways, it really kind of limited our guest possibility to people who are geographically here or willing to get here. So I was forced to go virtual, at least for now, during the pandemic, and it's been a huge blessing because I've been able to meet some incredible people from around the country, around the world, and share even more informed pregnancy information with their audience, and I'm very excited to have you on today. As a brief background, where are you from and how did you get started in obstetric and fetal health care?
1: So thank you, and I agree that the one silver lining of the pandemic is the Zoom era, where we can meet people from all over the place and feel normal about it. So that's great. I have the same experience as you. So I'm originally from the Midwest, from Chicago, and I came out to New York for undergraduate at Columbia, New York City. It was really my first time in the big city, so to speak, in New York, and I met my wife, who is a student at Barnard, and I've been here ever since in New York. I currently live in New Jersey. Uh, I did all my training, however, for medical school, obstetrics and gynecology, and then my maternal fetal medicine fellowship in New York City. And then I took a job in New York City, and I've been there ever since.
0: It's kind of interesting because Chicago sort of has its own little accent, and mm-hmm. New York definitely has its accent, but yours seems yeah. to be almost uh, washed away.
1: It comes out periodically. If I say the word like pants, I get uh, the, at the Midwest... But I'm all over the place. I'm kind of a hybrid now. I've been in New York longer than I've been in Chicago, but I still tell people I'm from Chicago. The Chicagoans are very proud and it's hard to <laughs> get out of us no matter what. I have all my Cubs paraphernalia. I walk around with my Cubs backpack and my Cubs shirt and, you know, we're, we're very proud of our town.
0: Oh, on top of everything else, you're brave.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. Good again.
0: <laughs> so, in terms of your training, you mentioned medical school, then OBGYN, then maternal fetal medicine. Before we right. jump in, what are the differences between OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine?
1: Right. So, great question. So, when you finish medical school and you have to pick a field, there are obviously several. One of them that most people know of is obstetrics and gynecology. And the training for OBGYN is basically a four year residency where you spend about half of your time doing obstetrics. So that's prenatal care, you know, care during pregnancy, deliveries obviously is a big component of it being on the labor floor. And the other half is gynecology. So office gynecology, surgical gynecology. And then most people, when they finish their training, they become OBGYNs and go into practice, either in private practice or for a hospital. And they do a combination of both obstetrics and gynecology. There are several what we call subspecialties within the field, and one of them is what I do, which is maternal fetal medicine. It's colloquially called high-risk obstetrics, and basically what we do is an extra three years of training for specifically pregnancy-related issues. So that can mean uh, women who have medical problems who become pregnant, someone with, let's say, diabetes or high blood pressure or cancer or lupus. Or it could be a woman who's perfectly healthy, but has a complicated pregnancy. For example, she has a twin pregnancy, a triplet pregnancy, or she has bleeding or preterm birth. And it could be a combination of those two. And so in our field, we specialize in the care of women with high-risk conditions. And we also do a lot of ultrasounds. So the fetal testing, so the ultrasounds that we do during pregnancy and any procedures done on pregnant women during pregnancy, that's also done by people in my field. So right now, basically, I consider myself an obstetrician, so I take care of pregnant women, I do consultations and procedures and deliveries for high-risk women, and I am a retired gynecologist. I don't really do general gynecology anymore. It's kind of
0: interesting. Uh, So many things are flowing through my head, but number one, it's a little interesting that OBGYN is still one specialty where everything has kind of become, like in orthopedics, you know, the fact that there isn't an orthopedics bone specialist, it almost seems like now there's a hand specialist and like a thumb specialist, you know, I only do thumbs, but in ob it's such a broad category that we still even mix OB with GYN is uh, interesting that it just hasn't become more subspecialized.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's talk about that, uh, about splitting the field into two and on the one hand, that makes some sense because with the surgical portion of obstetrics and gynecology, so for example, gynecology and gynecologic surgery, there are subspecialties for that as well. For example, gynecologic cancer, juvenile mm-hmm. uh, oncology has a subspecialty. Then there's pelvic floor surgery, which has a subspecialty. There's laparoscopic or minimally invasive surgery, which has a subspecialty. So I would say in bigger cities where there's a ton of doctors, people tend to be more subspecialized as you're describing. But if you go out into the country, into maybe smaller towns or more rural areas, there just wouldn't be enough doctors to take care of people. And the general OBGYN really can do 90%, give or take, of what anyone can do. And periodically, they might need the help of a specialist. But I think there's so much value, meaning even though I only do pregnancy, there's so much that I learned in my gynecologic training that if I didn't have it, I really wouldn't know certain things and on the flip side women who go to gynecologists they need to know about pregnancy because women get pregnant and so i think splitting it entirely is not a great idea but there's a lot of talk about maybe how to massage it for someone who knows they're going to do just gynecology versus knows they're just going to do pregnancy
0: that's really nice of you to use my kind of lingo how to massage it's <laughs> a very special talent you have um but the other thing is so i see here locally in los angeles mm-hmm. many of the Obijuan's who continue on to MFM, maternal fetal medicine, stop doing OB also and just do MFM, just do consults and right. work with other OBs. And I also see just ob who don't specialize into MFM, as they get further along in the career, they kind of retire from obstetrics, not from gynecology. Right. So you're like an interesting duck in the sense that you still do OB even though you're in MFM and you kind of moved away from gynecology. I mean, you're just, you know, Pregnancy and delivery specialist at this point?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, the hardest part of our field is probably the idea of being up at night for women in labor and you lose a lot of sleep. And so some people, as they get older, which makes sense, it's harder physically to do that. And so they move away from pregnancy related care and obstetrics and go into gynecology. Also, the reason they do that is because they've met and taken care of so many women over the years. And now that they're older, you know, they're 50s, 60s, 70s, they're not going to be having babies anymore, but they certainly need a gynecologist. And so you've built up a large practice of people who are already going to see you. For maternal fetal medicine, it's interesting. Some people go into the field specifically because they like pregnancy, but don't like doing deliveries. And so for them, they're like, okay, I can still concentrate in pregnancy and do consultations and really partake in the wonder of pregnancy, but not have to be up at night. And there are others like me who still enjoy doing deliveries. I would say right now in the U.S., probably 70 to 80 percent of maternal fetal medicine specialists don't do deliveries routinely or regularly, maybe a few during the day, but they don't do um, coal, as we call it.
0: Yeah, so I mean again it just makes you kind of an interesting person still regularly overseeing, managing, working with typical pregnancy and delivery and also um, doing the more advanced maternal fetal stuff. As a MFM, mm-hmm. would you say, just is my own curiosity, would you say that your patient is the pregnant person or the baby or both?
1: So it is both, although principally it's the mother. Our hierarchy is always healthy mother, number one, healthy baby, number two, and then number three, it's usually a fight between healthy doctor and healthy partner. We get to decide who gets third place, (laughs) Uh, but it's a focus on both. And it is one of the reasons I find our field so fascinating and so interesting and that we're trying to understand the health of the mother and the physiology of the mother, which is completely different during pregnancy. Everything changes and trying to sort that out and figure out what to do for her and by health, it's physical health, emotional health, mental health. I mean, there's so much that goes into health. And then for the fetus at that time, we're also trying to figure out what's best for the fetus in terms of growth, in terms of nutrition, in terms of optimization. Rarely are those two in conflict. Usually what's good for the mother is good for the fetus and vice versa. Occasionally there are situations where we have to decide, is the mother going to take a little bit of more risk to her health in order to... Maybe let's say prolong the pregnancy and help the baby, or on the flip side. But it usually is not that way. Fortunately, people think we have a lot of you know mother versus baby type of conflict in pregnancy, and it's very unusual that that happens.
0: I much more commonly see
1: mother versus
0: mother-in-law. Uh, but, you know, there's a yeah, clear winner happens. there.
1: That happens. I, you know, actually, interesting, I find it. it's actually mother versus mother because usually the mother-in-law has nothing to do with this, uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 so it's really, you know, someone and her mother. In it yeah, and within our field, there are people, you know, maternal fetal medicine is a subspecialty of obstetrics and gynecology, but there are people who sort of subspecialize, people who are very focused just on fetal, and they really, really specialize on ultrasound and procedures, and the fetus, and there's others who focus very much on maternal, like they do intensive care for pregnant women or you know they're specialized in diabetes or high blood pressure for pregnant women. And so there are people who really focus on one or the other. Uh, most of us don't, most of us are more, you know, breadth and depth of our field. I really enjoy that. I wouldn't wanna give up one versus the other.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. With everything we've talked about so far, it's quite obvious that you're going to have a wealth of information about the topic I really want to jump into, which is all these different diagnostic tests and measures that are done for mother and baby throughout, from beginning to end in a modern day pregnancy. And I feel like as time goes on, there will only be more of them. Let's start at the very beginning. Like even before conception, if somebody knows that they want to get pregnant, are there ideal things to look for?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. And we actually just did an entire hour long podcast on that topic about the pre-pregnancy visit, For most women who are, you know, healthy and just no medical problems, no complicated pregnancies in the past, there's not much to do. It's good to get a checkup to make sure all your general health tests are in order, you know, whether it's a pap smear or whether you're, you know, in need of a mammogram or whatever it might be. Prenatal vitamins, specifically having folic acid in your system before you get pregnant is one of the things that's very helpful in terms of preventing a specific condition in the fetus called spina bifida. And that's something that a lot of people know about, but some people forget. So you don't really need to see a doctor in order to do that, but if you're thinking of getting pregnant, it's good to even beforehand start either any prenatal or some form of folic acid. Uh, And then obviously if there's issues in terms of, is someone smoking, is someone drinking, you know, how much, can they cut back, can they stop? general health is really important if someone has some weight to lose it's great to start before pregnancy if someone doesn't exercise regularly it's great to start before pregnancy again all of these things are good to get in order and then for women who do have conditions health conditions whatever it might be it's really good to meet with someone before pregnancy to see is this condition going to affect my pregnancy in any way or is the pregnancy going to affect my condition in any way If I'm on treatment, like medications, do I have to change them? Do I not? Who's going to follow me? And I found one of the reasons it's important is the actual medical component, that sometimes you really need to do something before pregnancy. But even if not, once someone gets pregnant, there's so much going on, and it's so hard to sort of coordinate this. You know, you feel like pregnancy is moving along, and if you can get this stuff in order before you get pregnant, I find that people just have so much more peace of mind once the pregnancy is starting. Because I see women in both situations, before they get pregnant, and then also when they're already pregnant and sort of scrambling to try to work that all out.
0: Yeah, and you don't always know, but I agree with you. If you do know, it's sort of nice to touch base And even just have a little session where you find out, hey, what's in store for me? You know, assuming that I conceive soon. Also, a few things that you mentioned, medications. One thing I see is people who are really unsure what to do if they're taking medications for mental health, like anxiety or depression or other mental health medications. And we've come very far away with those medications and safety. And um, it's important to discuss, I think, before you get pregnant so that you have a clear path on uh, what to do. And the other thing that you mentioned is, you know, let's say you have excess weight, it would be great to take it off before conceiving, if possible, or to get it under control. I had a personal issue with that because my wife insisted on getting pregnant with our second baby before I had a chance to lose all the weight from our first pregnancy, and then yeah, I just had yeah. to give up after that.
1: So. <laughs> all right. I mean, health in general, people sometimes overlook the fact that just having a healthy lifestyle is so important during pregnancy, and they focus on, you know, the tests and you know the vitamins and this, but really just the idea of eating well and exercising and having good mental health and sleeping well, these things are critical in pregnancy. I mean, I'm here I am, I'm a high-risk doctor, I'm talking about the most basic things in the world, but they end up being the most important. And in terms of, you know, mental health, we find a lot of women, unfortunately, they get pregnant and then they just stop all their medications because they think they're like horribly dangerous. And that's rarely the case. Almost never do we have to stop medications. Most of the ones out there are either perfectly safe or, you know, they seem to be safe enough that they're worth the potential risk. But that's a really important conversation to have before pregnancy with your doctor just to make sure, you know, you have a decision in play before you actually get pregnant.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to really jump into the first and second trimester uh, tests. I was very excited when you said the word R. I finally heard the Midwest. (laughs) in your accent so yeah you've been authenticated Uh, we're going to take a break we'll be right back with dr nate fox (laughs) hey everyone it's dr berlin and i want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart literally omega-3 it's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked with 95 percent of women deficient Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Dr. Nate Fox. Okay, now you think you might be pregnant. First test that everybody runs to do, I assume, is the pregnancy test. There are lots of different kinds, the kinds that you pee on, the kinds that you take a tube of blood. What are we looking for? When's the right time to do them?
1: Yeah, I mean, there isn't really a right or a wrong here. The ones, the quote-unquote home pregnancy tests, are really very good and they're very sensitive, so to speak, meaning if there's any pregnancy hormone in your system, the urine tests tend to pick them up as positive, uh, specifically nowadays. It's more precise maybe to get a blood test which gives you an actual pregnancy hormone level, but it's rarely relevant. I mean, a lot of people end up getting all these tests for their pregnancy and generally they're not necessary. What I tell people is if you think you're pregnant, you know, take a pregnancy test at home, if it's positive, you're pregnant. And then at some point we have to figure out, is this pregnancy what we call a viable pregnancy? Meaning the likelihood of a miscarriage is actually pretty high. I think people don't realize how common it is to miscarry pregnancies because a lot of people don't talk about it. And also it sort of depends on when you decide is the start of the pregnancy. Meaning if you pick the start of a pregnancy as the time your pregnancy test becomes positive, the likelihood of of it not being positive anymore or, you know, getting your period and, you know, losing the pregnancy, so to speak, can be 20, 30, 40, 50 percent based on how old you are. And then as you get more pregnant and you don't miscarry, that rate goes down. So once someone's pregnant, we like to have them come into the office at some point to verify that everything looks good. There's different ways to do it. Some doctors prefer to have you come and get a blood test and then two or three days later get another blood test. And if it's going up by the right amount, then that seems to be okay. But Ultimately, the best way to decide or to know that the pregnancy is viable is to have an ultrasound somewhere six, seven, or eight weeks, give or take, after your period, which would be four, five, or six weeks after conception. And if the ultrasound looks good and there's a heartbeat, you have a viable pregnancy at that point. The only people who we really want to come in earlier than that might be people with significant medical problems or history of what's called an ectopic pregnancy, where you have to make sure that's not going on but we usually don't have people come to our office until at least six weeks from their period, which would be four weeks from conception.
0: Yeah, so uh, those numbers also get tricky, like how you count.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, we do that to confuse people. It makes us sound smarter than we are. It's working. <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> yeah, very what, contr- hap- what happens is traditionally, this is goes back hundreds of years, no one knew anything about anything. All we knew was when a woman would get her period. And so her pregnancy was dated, from her last period. So when we said eight weeks, we mean eight weeks from her period. However, you don't even ovulate until two weeks from your period. And so that's when conception is. Mm -hmm. So what happens is when you read sort of anything written by an obstetrician and they say you're X weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, 40 weeks, whatever it is, they mean from your period, but everybody knows that the first two weeks of that, you're not even pregnant. So Conception happens at two weeks and zero days. I mean, again, if your period's regular and this or that. But once we start talking about how many weeks pregnant you are, we're always referring to the last period, and that's just a historical nomenclature that we use, even though it really doesn't make much sense.
0: Right, the first two weeks, you can't be pregnant because you have an obvious, there's no egg. Right. And then the next two weeks, you don't know you're pregnant Correct. because you have to wait for something to show up. Yeah. So by the time you can do a test and figure out that you're pregnant, you're pretty much four weeks pregnant, but yeah. you've had a baby in there for two weeks.
1: Yeah, you miss your period, give or take, at about four weeks, and that's around the same time the pregnancy test becomes positive, positive. and then about a week later, what we call five weeks, is probably the first time you can see something on ultrasound, and about a week after that, at six weeks, is about the first time you would see a heartbeat on ultrasound. You don't always see it at six weeks, but give or take, around there.
0: Mm-hmm. So the 40 weeks that we talk about as, you know, the mm-hmm. typical length of a pregnancy is really 38 weeks from conception.
1: Right. It's like two weeks off to say Yeah.
0: And then 36 weeks from the time you find out that you're pregnant.
1: Another two weeks off. Here you go. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And if you go two weeks early, okay, we can go on forever. So, I mean, you said you could potentially see something on ultrasound around five weeks or a heartbeat around six weeks um, at the roughly earliest. So when is the ideal time to get
1: that ultrasound? So a lot of people don't even do it, interestingly. Uh, Some people feel it's unnecessary and they just, you know, have them come to the office and they still have symptoms and a positive test. They just assume it's a normal pregnancy and that's okay medically. It's not, you know, dangerous to walk around necessarily not knowing what's going on with the pregnancy, but I find that most women, they want to know, like, is this pregnancy going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Are things looking good? Are they not looking good? You know, in our practice, we do an ultrasound on everybody at their first visit and generally the best time to do it is probably somewhere around that seven eight or nine weeks after your period you know six is doable but maybe slightly early but that's sort of the sweet spot the seven eight or nine weeks because by then you're going to know if everything's viable or not and then you can sort of have better expectations for what's going to happen moving forward
0: yeah so a few thoughts first of all that ultrasound is transvaginal right it's not on the belly
1: it depends. At seven weeks, it's almost always vaginal. At nine weeks, based on the contour of her belly, if she's you know, thinner, you can usually see it abdominally, but I would expect it to be vaginal ultrasound in most cases at seven, eight, or nine weeks.
0: Right. And then just in terms of what to expect, you know, I see the argument both ways on doing the earlier ultrasounds. I sort of feel like because you mentioned that in the earlier stages of pregnancy, there's a significantly higher rate of miscarriage, which is never fun, but it's it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you and that pregnancy is going to be challenging for you. It's just, you know, your body's trying to figure out, is this baby viable, like you said, and is it healthy and going to turn into a healthy human in life or I kind of sort of picture it's the jelly belly factory they're like no this one doesn't look right and then they send yeah. it off to the belly flops and so you know for some people they have told me that once they see the baby even if there's no heartbeat or especially if they do see a heartbeat they become a lot more attached to it and then if it doesn't pan out it's a lot harder to recover from uh, mentally perhaps but on the other hand some people feel very comforted and I you tell me but once you see the heartbeat is there then also a drop in the chances that the pregnancy won't
1: oh significantly lower and i think that that's part of it i I agree that there is that idea that once you see something on ultrasound with a heartbeat there is a greater attachment and the miscarriage uh, were to occur would be uh, potentially more difficult emotionally but fortunately once you see a pregnancy that's the right size with a heartbeat the likelihood of a miscarriage is much 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 lower in all age groups Mm -hmm. actually And so it's not, so to speak, you know, like risky in that sense. I think that what ends up happening is really also the messaging. And I think it's important. It's not just about the ultrasound. It's about the conversation with the person doing the ultrasound with the doctor. And so if you have an ultrasound and everything looks really good, the baby's the right size, the sac looks good, it's in the right place, the heartbeat is good, then I tell people, you know, this is really positive. All early pregnancies are tenuous, but your likelihood of a problem is now much, much lower. Whereas if I do the early ultrasound and there isn't a heartbeat or the baby's measuring much smaller and there seems to be, you know, it doesn't seem right, then we'll talk about that. And again, it's about the conversation, about the discussion and about women having expectations that are realistic, both positive and negative. Some people end up being too negative and some people end up being too positive, but it really, it's important, just like you said at the very beginning about having accurate information I think if I can give them good information about what the likelihood is going to be for this pregnancy, they find it very helpful. And as you said, the miscarriage, if it happens, almost always means nothing about the mother. It's not like she did anything wrong or there's anything wrong with her. It just happens to be that the egg that came out that ovulated had the wrong genetic material in it. And that's just a percent chance. It's just odds, the likelihood. It's almost never something that's a problem with the mother, certainly not something she's doing. And that's also a very important point that the body is able to recognize that early and miscarry those pregnancies. Yeah, it's very hard to go through. It stinks. It's very painful, but sort of on that level that you're talking about, that's an abnormal pregnancy from the start and was meant to be miscarried. And I'm not saying it makes women feel better about it because it's horrible, but at least it's sort of understandable why it would happen.
0: Yeah, And so two thoughts. One is now that you have some understanding of the pros and cons of doing or not doing those early ultrasounds, it's always your choice. You can pick whether you want to do it or not do it, and have that discussion with your doctor and be an active decision maker. Uh, You know, sometimes I sort of compare it for my patients. They're very surprised if they have a miscarriage, very shocked, and generally don't hear stories. We've tried on our podcast to have people share their miscarriage stories, especially celebrities, people who you somehow relate to or at least know that they exist, and they share their miscarriage stories. And I think the conversation is moving a little bit more in that direction. So it's not so shocking when you have an early miscarriage in the first trimester. But, you know, one way I try to describe it is that if two people eat something that's poisonous and one looks really great and healthy and smiley and the other one looks green and is about to throw up, which one's healthier (laughs) is the one that their body was able to recognize that something's wrong and is going to take corrective measure. And that's essentially what the body's doing most times. In terms of the other tests in the first trimester, I would like to know what else is typical and standard, but also since we spent a little time talking about how you count things, when do the trimesters shift over?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's so interesting because trimesters really started when we would say pregnancies are nine months. So it'd be three months, three months, and three months. But the problem is we really don't use months when we count pregnancies, at least the doctors don't. And there's a lot of reasons for that. First of all is the word month is a little bit vague, right? Does that mean four weeks? Does it mean 30 days? Does it mean 31 days? Does it mean calendar months? So we don't really use months, we use weeks. And people actually (laughs) dispute what we should call first, second, and third trimester. The way I look at it is the first trimester is from when you get pregnant, until about 12 or 13 weeks. And the most important point is, and we'll talk about once you sort of have all the tests that are complete in the first trimester, around that time I say you're in the second trimester. And then the third trimester starts around 24, 25, or 26 weeks. And I usually use 24 weeks, some people use 26 weeks, but give or take. If you want to remember round numbers, 12 weeks, 24 weeks would be the the way to go. Yeah.
0: I mean, that makes a lot of sense that it's just sort of a ballpark and not an actual clinical term, yeah. uh, the trimester. And also the idea that they may not be symmetrical. They may not be the same number of weeks, depending on how you're counting them. OK, so whatever trimester means, what else is done in the first trimester testing wise?
1: So once we've established that the pregnancy is viable, either with an ultrasound or with the serial blood test. You know, there, there's the tests we do just basically on the mother, we examine her, you know, head to toe, do a physical exam, and she's due again for a pap smear, we'll do a pap smear. Uh, this is just, again, general health type of measures. There's blood work, what they do at the beginning of pregnancy, again, very little of that is actually relevant to most people. We like to verify, you know, that she doesn't have HIV, we like to verify that she's not anemic, we like to verify if she's immune to certain viruses, so we know whether she needs vaccines or doesn't need vaccines after pregnancy. But most of that is just sort of a standard panel that has very little relevance to her, and you know the results are almost not even discussed because they're just sort of the standards. I would say the more important testing starts towards the end of the first trimester, and that's when we get into all the genetic testing uh, related to the fetus. And that's, I think, number one, fascinating. And number two, the most difficult for women to understand because it's also the most difficult for doctors to explain to them. And I think that that's really the area where people are lost and what's going on.
0: Okay. So when would the genetic testing start? What are you looking for? And there are various options on how to do it as well.
1: Right. So the first thing is to separate. There's two types of genetic testing we do related to pregnancy. The first type, and this is not sequentially, but just you know, one of them, is when we're looking at the genetics of the parents, meaning the pregnant woman and her partner, if it's her husband or boyfriend, or if it was IVF or a sperm donor, who that person was or is. And the reason is there are certain genetic conditions that are inherited from parents to children, and specifically these that we call autosomal recessive. So some of the famous ones that people may have heard of are like Tay-Sachs or cystic fibrosis. And these are conditions where again, the fetus or the baby is only going to inherit it if each of the parents or both of the parents carry that condition. And so there's testing that can be done on the mother, on the father to see if they carry genetic conditions. If they carry it, they'll have no health condition whatsoever. There's nothing relevant to their health, but if they both carry the same condition, there's a 25% chance the baby could get it. So that's a type of genetic screening we do during pregnancy. That can also be done before pregnancy because again, it's testing of the parents. This would have been true. Her genetic tests would be the same when she's one years old and 99 years old. These are her genes. And so that's testing that if it wasn't done before pregnancy, we'll do during pregnancy. And it's only relevant if both her and the partner carry a mutation for the same condition. If they don't, it doesn't matter what they carry.
0: Okay, so you're saying that you could test the donor of the egg and the donor of the sperm to see if they have the same genetic conditions, if they're carriers for them. They don't have the disease, but if they're carriers, then we have to be concerned perhaps that the resulting fetus will not just be a carrier, but will actually have that disease.
1: Correct. So take the paradigm for Tay-Sachs, for example, just to make it simple. And again, everything here applies to egg donor, sperm donor, but I'm going to say mother and father, just for simplicity in terms of what we're talking about here. So you would test the mother, the pregnant woman to see if she's a carrier. And if she's a carrier of Tay-Sachs, again, she is perfectly healthy. She does not have the disease. She has no manifestations of anything. She would never know she has it. She's perfectly fine. And then we test the father, and if he is not a carrier of Tay-Sachs, then it means nothing for the fetus, no issues. If he happens to be a carrier for Tay-Sachs, so they're both a carrier, then there's a 25% chance that the fetus that she's carrying has Tay-Sachs, and her options would either be to wait until birth and test the baby or to do invasive testing during pregnancy, like an amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling, or CVS, to see if the baby has it or not. This type of testing can be done before pregnancy also, and if they're carriers, they can actually decide to do IVF and test the embryos before they go in to see if they have the condition or not. Uh, So this is sometimes testing that people already know about before they get pregnant, and they've had done, and sometimes not, and we do it during pregnancy.
0: Yeah, just before, we'll go into a break, I think when we come back we'll talk about this in a little bit greater detail, but just that last point that you were saying is if the mother and father or whoever's contributing the sperm and the egg are known to be carriers for these diseases, uh, both have it, then if they do IVF, so you would trigger the development of more than one egg, hormonally, and then harvest them, and then you would take a semen sample and combine them somehow. You know the are various ways of having them meet and make mm. embryos, and then right. you can actually let them grow a little bit and take off some of the cells and test them right to see if they are either carriers or if they fully expressive for that disease, and know before you put them in so that you would only transfer embryos that don't have the disease and and you can prevent a baby with these genetic conditions from the get-go.
1: Right. Now it's important to realize that there are so many different conditions we can carry. And I would say 50 to 75% of people carry mutations to certain diseases, but 1% or less of couples carry for the same condition. So this is something we test, but it's usually not relevant to them because we're just sort of assuring that they don't carry the same genetic mutations. It's only 1% of the time that we find that they do carry the same genetic mutation And then they're in this boat where either they have to test during pregnancy or test before pregnancy. So it's something we do, but it's not something that is usually relevant to most couples.
0: Well, this is one of those episodes of our podcast where there's a ton of information to get and an expert who has a wealth of information and one of the ones I want to go on for like three or four hours, but it probably won't happen. So (laughs) let's take a quick break. We'll be right back and dig deeper into the testing that takes place during pregnancy. back to the Informed Pregnancy podcast. We're talking to Dr. Nate Fox and we're almost out of the first trimester, but that's where a lot of the testing does take place. And you were talking about the potential for doing more invasive genetic testing like an amniocentesis or a CVS. And once it's determined that that would be a good idea and the mom says, yes, I'd like to do it. When are they done? How are they done? What's the difference between the two options?
1: Right, so the CVS is done around 12, 13 weeks, and the amniocentesis around 16 weeks. Uh, Conceptually, they're the same. We call them invasive because there's a needle going through the mother's belly, usually it's her belly, into the pregnancy. In a CVS, though, we guide the needle into the placenta, and in an amniocentesis, we guide the needle into the amniotic fluid, around the baby. We do this ultrasound guided. This is one of the, two of the procedures that the maternal fetal medicine specialists learn to do. Uh, so it's one of the things that, you know, I do when I'm covering the ultrasound units. And the point is you get a genetic sample from the baby instead of trying to sort of infer it from either blood tests on the mother or ultrasound findings, you actually get a genetic sample. No different from if, when the baby was born, you got a blood sample or a cheek swab or something like that. And then we can test for these conditions like Tay Sachs that we were talking about before, more famously, people would do this to look for genetic conditions in the baby, like Down syndrome, and that's the second type of genetic testing that women undergo in pregnancy, where it's not testing their genetics but the baby, and that's unique to each pregnancy, to each baby, and that's where I think a lot of women get really confused about what the options are
0: in terms of which test to do.
1: There's basically three paradigms for what to do, and We're talking about genetic conditions that arise in the baby that have nothing to do with the parents. It's not carried by the parents, other than many of them become more common as the mother gets older. One paradigm is not to test at all and say, listen, my baby's my baby. He or she, we're going to go to the end of pregnancy. We're going to deliver. We're going to love this baby. We'll find out everything after birth. And so we don't do any testing on the baby during pregnancy. And that's one paradigm. On the other end of the spectrum is to say, I want to know everything I need to know about this baby. I want to get every diagnosis and they do an invasive test like a CVS or amniocentesis. And then there's the middle option, which to do some form of ultrasound and blood tests to give you a sense of what is the likelihood of the baby having one of these genetic conditions. And then based on that deciding, am I going to do the invasive test or just rely on this blood test ultrasound? Those are really the three options, and there's so much data and information and what they mean and why you would and why you wouldn't. And I find that most people, when they come to that decision, are really uninformed about how to make that decision or what decision to make.
0: I would say if you would agree to come back... I'd love to do an episode just on that because it is, as you've said, very complex on many levels in terms of just the paradigm. You're talking about paradigms, like a plan of action. What would you like to do? And then how would you do it? And then what would you do with the results that you got from it? It's a whole episode. So I'm glad we touched on it here. But if you'll come back, we'll do another whole episode on that. I'm in. Okay, great. In terms of the um, CVS versus amnio, is there pros and cons to one or the other? And also, the thought of that giant needle going into the belly or into the placenta is not comforting. Is there, in terms of comfort alone, is there numbing agent that's used? How does that happen? Uh,
1: In terms of the first question, what's the difference? The first difference is when they're done, the CVS is done Earlier than the amniocentesis, which is one of the big advantages. You get your results earlier. So knowing this information at 12, 13 weeks, again, most of the time you do these tests, you get normal results. And so having that reassurance early is usually helpful. And also if, unfortunately, there's an abnormal finding, most people would want to know that earlier rather than later. So that's one difference. The amniocentesis is always done through the belly, through the abdomen, whereas a CVS is usually done through the abdomen, but can be done vaginally as well. Those are the two main differences. They used to think that a CVS was a little bit riskier than an amniocentesis, but pretty much all of the newer data shows that's not correct. And the risk of losing the pregnancy from the procedure is very low for both of them. The estimates are about 1 in 500, so well less than 1% chance. Uh, And that's, again, of losing the pregnancy. Yes, it hurts to have a needle stuck in your belly. I am well aware of that. And it's a little freaky to see the long needle come out. But, you know, when you put it in context, it's, number one, the same needle that women are going to have when they get an epidural. So a lot of women are thinking of getting an epidural. So it's literally the same needle that's used. And number two, it's actually skinnier than the needle we use to draw blood. So Mm -hmm. when you look at sort of the pain from a needle, it's not the length of the needle that drives how painful it is. It's much more so how skinny it is. For example, if you're doing acupuncture, right, it wouldn't matter if the needles they used are one inch long or 12 inches long. It's just that they're so thin and so fine at the point, they don't tend to hurt going in. And so, yes, it's unpleasant, but it's not horrible as far as I can tell. In terms of numbing the area It doesn't tend to help so much because the majority of the pain is not when the needle goes through the skin, which is what you would numb. It's when the needle goes into the uterus because the uterus cramps up and you can't really numb that. And so what ends up happening is if you numb the skin, you have to inject some, you know, numbing medicine, which burns probably more than the needle would have. Mm -hmm. Some people use like a topical numbing medicine, but we've never found it to be that helpful in terms of overall pain. Most women tolerate procedure very, very well. Even people who tell me they're afraid of needles, they're not good with needles, usually if you could be calm and reassuring and talk them through it, it goes fine.
0: I mean, a lot of the couples that i talk to that have done it, the partner who's having it done seems to be fine, and the partner who's watching it being done seems to need some kind of medication. Yes, Uh. yes. I
1: say that all the time. (laughs) During this procedure, we lose a lot more dads than moms.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So moving on out of the first trimester, what are the next tests that are done? I know that people get excited for the structural ultrasound. Is that next on the docket?
1: It's interesting. Once the first trimester is done and these tests are done, there's really not that much testing we do. There is the ultrasound or some series of ultrasounds based on the exact situation to examine the baby. The biggest ultrasound is the one in the second trimester just to look at the baby head to toe to make sure the baby looks normal. You know, the heart looks normal, the brain looks normal, the spine looks normal, Some people call that the anatomy ultrasound. Some people call it a level two ultrasound, some people call it detailed, but basically it's looking at the baby head to toe. And again, fortunately, most babies who have gone through the early genetic screening are going to look normal. Anything we pick up is either going to be nothing or very minor. Rarely we pick up major abnormalities and have to discuss that. But again, that's the exception. And then after that, At that point, there's little testing done on the mother except quite low-tech stuff, checking her weight, checking her blood pressure, seeing how she's doing. And on the baby, it depends. Sometimes we have to do serial ultrasounds to see how the baby's growing. But in most lowest pregnancies, we do not. And then at the very end of pregnancy, there's a blood test we do to screen for diabetes and a vaginal culture we do for group B strep.
0: Okay, let's talk about all those. First of all, that level 2 ultrasound structural anatomy, whatever you would call it, i am just blown away every time i see all the detail because that's around 18 and weeks or so right or 20 weeks somewhere in uh,
1: if someone has one of them it's usually around 20 weeks sometimes people get it done twice and then it's 16 and 20 weeks but for most people it's going to be just at 20 weeks uh, and yeah that's something that you know that i do every day and it is absolutely unbelievable as you said i mean the details you can see at 20 weeks are essentially the same details you would see when the baby's born I mean, as a
0: chiropractor, yeah. I'm looking at these little vertebrae and all the structures yeah. of the spine, and they're just all there. They're just going to get bigger yeah. now, and it's really... So they're at
1: 12 weeks, too, actually. When we do one of the ultrasounds at 12 weeks, if you have a really good machine, the detail you can see when the baby's the size of a thumb is just incredible, and it's really just related to the quality of the ultrasound machine and sometimes you know some contours of her body that make all the difference, but it is fascinating, and people... When they see that ultrasound, they're like, oh, my God, that's that's like a real baby in there.
0: Yeah. And especially compared to the regular ultrasounds where you guys are looking at the cord and the placenta and all sorts of things, I'm like, I don't yeah. see that. I'm like, I would have to smoke a lot of something to see what you yeah. guys see on there. You have a lot of... <laughs> but anyway, the gestational diabetes test, when do you guys do it, 26? Yeah, it's
1: generally, you want to do it far enough in pregnancy that the placenta's had time to grow. And if it's going to happen, you're going to know about it but not too late that you can't intervene. So it ends up being between about 24 and 28 weeks and it's a screen where the woman drinks a sugary drink. And then about an hour later, we draw her blood. There's another way to do it where you do it two hours later, but basically some point after she drinks something, you check her blood. And if she passes, she passes and she's done. And if she quote unquote fails, she may need to take a longer, more annoying test. that takes three hours. Uh, And essentially, we're just trying to see how the placenta has messed with her metabolism of sugar, and if she has higher sugar than we would expect, and then we have to manage it. But it's not a condition that people should be afraid of. It's not dangerous, typically, to her or the baby as long as it's managed, it's much more of a nuisance. It's annoying because you have to do a lot of things if you have gestational diabetes.
0: So first of all, the term diabetes is quite scary to a lot of people. This is not that type of diabetes. It's similar in some ways, but it's temporary typically. And manageable. My patients don't like a few things. Number one, they don't like that if the test shows that they might have diabetes, that they've failed. <laughs> they yeah, feel like the term, like they should have studied harder, And they don't love how... their
1: it, placenta fail. They could think of it that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing is they don't love sometimes the way it's done, like the glucola just, you know, shocking the body. Well, you know, they're trying to eat healthy and drink healthier things. And then they have this concentrated sugar drink to drink I always wondered, is there not like a healthier way to do that? Like you're looking for a certain number of grams of glucose.
1: Right. People have done it with jelly beans. There's a certain number of jelly beans. But first of all, it ends up being the same amount of sugar that you're digging in. So they find those more palatable than the drink. The other way to do it is to have them check their blood glucose by a finger stick, like prick their finger four times a day for two weeks, which number one isn't actually as accurate in terms of diagnosing it. And B is also pretty annoying. Yeah, it's a tough one. I agree. It's not pleasant. And, you know, we try to keep it light. We try not to make it so serious. Whenever I say the word fail to patients, I always put it in quotes. I always laugh about it because I, I always tell them it has nothing to do with them. And it actually has nothing to do with what they've been eating for the past two months either. It's really just the placenta affects everybody's metabolism of sugar, every pregnant woman. And if it just does it more than we think it should be doing it, that's what gestational diabetes is. And I agree, diabetes is actually a very poor word for this condition because it's not diabetes. They don't have a disease. It should be called hyperglycemia of pregnancy, but that's a little longer.
0: Yeah, right you know, sweet pregnancy. I don't know. There's a little too a, sweet. There's a way we could soften that. Yeah, so two interesting things. One is I've seen a couple of midwives when they do this test, they have a meal, a prescribed meal that people eat. It's not the jelly beans either, although the jelly beans do have some benefit for people because they can tolerate it better. So people sometimes get really nauseous after drinking mm-hmm. the sugary drink. Other people have no problem with this. It's just a handful yeah. of people that kind of bring up, I wonder if there's a better way to do this. Um, and in terms of the monitoring, so I don't even know what it's called, that little thing that they can put on their arm now.
1: Continuous uh, glucose monitor.
0: Continuous glucose monitor and just get two weeks of data that way. So one stick, no glucola. I don't know if you hold by that or not, but I've seen a couple of people do it here now.
1: Yeah, I mean, all these things, these are all probably fine. The issue is it's hard to know that they're going to be as diagnostic as what we've been doing for 50 years. And that's the problem. And, you know, someone takes a meal. Are the cutoffs going to be different because they're eating food with it? No one really knows. Conceptually, it probably does not make a big difference for most people, but it's hard for everyone to be on board with something that's so different from the way in which it was ascertained and all the data was collected from that way it was ascertained to sort of know if it's going to translate or not. Yeah, it's just an unknown is what I would say.
0: If you need help with the research, I'll try the jelly beans.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's that's
0: what kind of guy I am. And then, of course, the results of the gestational diabetes and, you know, how significant they are, it just will determine how it's treated. Sometimes it could just be diet and exercise, sometimes oral medications, and sometimes even insulin. Is that right? right?
1: Mostly diet and exercise. 80% of people who get diagnosed with gestational diabetes will never have to take medicine for it in pregnancy. And the 20% that have to take medicine, whether it's a pill or whether it's an injection of insulin... Again, we really just try to reassure them that this is just to keep your sugar normal. You're gonna be fine. Your baby's gonna be fine. This is really just something you gotta do. It's annoying, but we don't like raise flags and alarms and you know freak people out over this. It's just trying to keep the sugar at a reasonable level. And mostly so the baby doesn't get too big and you end up with a higher risk of a C-section. And it's really just to keep things as they were intended to be, so to speak. But not to worry people, very unusual. The only people who seem to have very high risk is people who actually have diabetes. Like they walk into pregnancy with diabetes, that's a much different scenario. Uh, But they already know that because they already know they have diabetes and it's a lifelong condition. And so in pregnancy, it's a little more serious than the gestational diabetes would be.
0: The other test you mentioned is further along towards the end, which is the groupie strep. And that is a swab that yeah. I find surprises everyone. They don't know it's coming.
1: They should. Someone should tell them. I mean, they know it's coming
0: <laughs> as the swab comes, but they don't know on this next visit we're gonna do this test and what we're looking for and what the results might mean. So groupie streptococcus is a bacteria. You know, why do we do the swab and what does it mean if you're positive or negative? Are there things that you can do ahead of time to prevent becoming positive or negative
1: right so uh, in terms of what it is group B strep is a bug a bacteria that's actually not abnormal for women to have so women who are not pregnant you know somewhere around 20-25 percent of women have it and again it's not pathologic if you're not pregnant we don't care we don't test for it we don't treat it because it's one of the normal what we call flora that you can find in the vagina The reason we test in pregnancy is because some babies, if they get it during birth, like during a vaginal birth, it can potentially be dangerous to the newborn. It's usually not dangerous to the newborn. Most babies who are passing through don't get a problem, but it's been found that if you test women and those that have it, when they're in labor, you give the mom antibiotics, the chance of the baby getting that, what we call GBS or group B strep sepsis, which is a severe infection, is not zero, but it's almost zero. And so because of that, we screen all women and when they're in labor, if they have it, we treat the mother so that the baby gets treated. Once she delivers, again, it's not an issue for the mother. In terms of making sure she doesn't have it, not really known if, you know, a certain diet can do that or maybe taking, you know, eating certain yogurts or probiotics, whether that helps or doesn't help. Because again, it's not an abnormal bug to have. It's not like a problem for her. But isn't a bug that's usually in the gut? It's usually in the gut, but a lot of the gut bacteria can end up in the vagina because there's a, you know, the same neighborhood. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you're looking for a colonization vaginally.
1: Also rectal. The swab, that's another thing that surprises women if they're not worn. The swab is actually supposed to be both rectal and vaginal. So that swab's going in two places, and people should be warned in advance.
0: Yeah, and that's another question that people have. Why are we doing rectal swab? If it's a bacteria that's commonly in the gut, you would expect a rectal swab to be positive. But I've never seen a baby come out rectally. So.
1: <laughs> that's a good thing. It happens, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, okay, um, good. But um, it's not in all women. It's in about, again, 25%, so to speak. And most women who have it rectally will also have it vaginally is how it ends up, because there's so much mixing of that bacteria.
0: So the question, because you're so close to birth when you do it, around 37-ish weeks?
1: Yeah, at 36, so in that range, yes.
0: So if we just did a vaginal swab, wouldn't that be enough? Meaning, aren't a lot more people going to test positive if we do the rectal swab than just the vaginal swab?
1: Yeah, I mean, these are all good questions. And actually, when I was training, the swab wasn't even done routinely, They would basically go by risk factors because as you said, a lot of women are going to test positive. And so in the paradigm we have now, about 20-25% of women get antibiotics in labor because of this. And in the old paradigm, when we did it by risk factors, meaning we only treated with antibiotics if the woman was preterm or if her water was broken for a certain amount of time or she had a fever, fewer women got antibiotics, but there was a slightly higher rate of babies getting the group B-sepsis. And Whether there's other ways to do it, meaning just a vaginal swab, it's possible there are better ways to do this. But in order to study that, you have to do it on like millions of women to figure this out because the rate of group B strep sepsis is very low to begin with. Well, this is only because it's so severe. It's so dangerous to the baby, but it is very rare no matter what you do.
0: Sure. And then you always have that risk-benefit analysis to contend with, but, you know, I think more holistically-minded people are concerned about taking IV antibiotics during labor. Yeah. For various reasons, getting rid of the healthy part of the bacterial microbiome, yeah. and how that might affect both the baby and the mother—you know, especially with all the recovery that happens after childbirth um, or breastfeeding—and you know, the cracked nipple idea of uh, what's going to protect you from mastitis and other infections if you are low on your positive bacteria. So, you know, hopefully, an ongoing conversation to figure out how to maximize the benefit and minimize the risk.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And people know that we're not sure that the way we're doing it is the best way. But the problem is, you don't want to necessarily switch to something you think is better, but ends up being worse. And so you have to sort of study that. So it's not easy. And this is still being looked at and studied, but it takes a lot of time, unfortunately.
0: And speaking of a lot of time, we've spent a lot of your time this morning. This is one of our longer episodes, but extremely valuable, beneficial, honest, and knowledgeable. I am definitely going to take you up, hopefully sooner than later, to have you back, because I even have more questions about what happens towards the even further end of pregnancy with non-stress tests and biophysical profiles, and what we're looking for as you get closer to or beyond the due date and other things like IUGR, if you see the baby's not growing uh, as fast as we'd like, questions about cord and what we can learn about cord or placenta, where the placenta is. The list goes on and on, so we'll have to have you back, despite your accent. It's come (laughs) up a few times now. But if our listeners would like a wealth of additional information from your wonderful style and delivery, no pun intended, you could check out the Healthful Woman podcast, which is your podcast. Tell me about that.
1: Yes. So we started the podcast in April of this year. So April, 2020, we were going to start it in May, but then COVID hit. And so we actually decided to do a bunch of COVID related podcasts. And, you know, essentially I do it, so to speak on the side, like it's not my job. I do it (laughs) for fun. I really enjoy it. And the reason we started the podcast was very similar to what you're doing, uh, which I think is great. There is so much bad information out there for all people, but specifically for women is what, you know, we're talking about, and it's just hard for people to find information that's balanced that's evidence-based that's understandable that they can figure out if it's relevant to them and so we decided let's do a podcast you know this is how people are consuming information we're going to talk about topics that we talk about every day with women try to present it in a way that's interesting that's understandable that's relevant occasionally funny and just do it and so we've been doing a couple of podcasts a week since then, so I think we've done about 75 or plus. Wow. And the response has been really good. We've had over 20,000 downloads so far. A lot of them are in the New York area just because they've heard of us, you know, from all over the country and all over the world. People are listening. People are sending us by email ideas or they're commenting or they're, as you know, you get feedback from someone that says, Oh my God, this was really helpful to me. It's wonderful. There's nothing more gratifying than that. And so they're free to download, anyone can listen. We call it Healthful Woman. We're trying to be holistic in terms of what we could cover. It's not just medicine. It's pregnancy. It's gynecology. It's women's health. It's wellness. It's menopause. We did a whole week on yoga. We did cancer. I mean, we try to cover as broad topics as possible for women, and it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. I'm going to
0: start listening to it because I've learned so much from in just this hour, and I think that you're right. Our audience, if they like us, they'll probably gonna like that as well. Uh, where can we find you online?
1: So you can find me online. Our podcast has a website, which is www.healthfulwoman.com. That's dot com. So that's like our podcast website. Or for my own practice, it's www.mfm.com nyc.com that's mfm like maternal fetal medicine nyc like New newyorkcity.com uh, so that's my overall practice but specific for the podcast is a healthfulwoman.com or if they you know Come to the Upper East Side of Manhattan and look for the guy with a Chicago accent and a cuff shirt on. <laughs>
0: Amazing. Dr. Nate Fox, thank you so much for joining us. Definitely, there's going to be a part two in the very near future. So look forward to that. And thanks for listening to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. For finding us online, why not check out Instagram at Dr. Berlin. It's D O C T O R B E R L I N.